So this is another one of the BBC cuts. Remember me mentioning that all the way back in Miri, which at this point was like a year ago. <laughs> you remember that? It's not the last one. The other uh, two episodes that they cut are also in season three. Of all the episodes to cut, I, it's the, the, the stated reason is because of the torture. So, okay, I guess there's actually torture in this episode, so why not? Uh, this episode was written by Joyce Muscat, who has never written anything else for the show. She was one of the fans, though. She was a fan of the show who did an unsolicited, which if you're paying attention, season three was the first time they did the whole unsolicited thing, something that would become normal in more modern Trek stuff. This was also directed by John Ehrman. Now, I mentioned him. This is actually interesting. He was also the only... This is the only episode he directed. He didn't do anything else. What I mentioned about this is... He was actually... This was originally supposed to be directed by John Meredith Lucas. John Meredith Lucas was never asked to come back. He's already done with the show. Because he went over budget on Elan of Troyes. Okay. So this guy comes in and they're like, Oh, man, you're great. Could you come back? And his response is... No, I hated working on it. Yeah. Speaking of losing people, this is our last Jerry Finneman episode. Our director of photography. I actually mentioned him earlier. And he's out. That's the end of that. So I hope you enjoy the unique look of this because it's, it's pretty well done. I do like what they do with this. I know that sounds strange since I put this episode on the skip list. But they do... The, the creativity they use in order to make the set works. Make the set work works for me. There we go. Let's say that correctly. <clears throat> now, check this out. They're studying a star, which is going Nova. Okay. No mention whatsoever is made of the fact that there might be inhabited planets in the star. They just They mention that there's a star going Nova, and they're studying it. So what I'm left with is the impression that they don't know that there's inhabited people here, which is insane, especially since they're studying it. But let's that is what the impression I was left with, okay? Do me a favor and remember that. They come down, it's like, hey, oh my gosh, no. There's a there's a solar flare coming. What do we do? Uh okay. I've got an idea. We'll send the Enterprise away so it'll be safe, and we'll stay here rather than beam up, because that makes all kinds of sense. Let's do that without having food or shelter set up for us, without having any idea what's going on, especially since the scientists are just missing and have been missing for months, and without any knowledge of the fact the Enterprise may or may not be able to come back and pick them back up. This is really stupid, but it, let's just move on from that. So, yeah, I, I mentioned the, the unique look and the set thing. It's just a black, dro black backdrop, which might have actually been a little bit too boring, but they did something cool with the lighting. There's these little pulses of lights, and the lights would kind of turn on and off depending on where they're at in, in the black set at any given point in time, which gives this impression of, like, a slowly moving field of visibility. It's actually very well done, and I wanted to give special praise to both the camera work and the lighting work in this episode because, well, they have a ridiculously limited budget, and frankly, being able to pull out anything that looks this good with that budget is very impressive. Just like I mentioned back in Spectre of the Gun. This is actually good stuff. Either way, they try to communicate with her, and they mention that she does not have vocal cords at all. Now, they imply she does not have language. Let me, let me sit on that point for a second. 
for the overwhelming majority of the episode, the actress playing uh, Jem, <laughs> think about her name for a second, Jem, and the actors around her in the script all presume that she can't understand them at all. In short, that she basically doesn't have a concept of language. I will admit this idea is fascinating and something that really caught my attention. Uh, I've actually spoken many times about having to reach out and communicate with people who cannot speak my language for one reason or another, either because they're mute or, excuse me, deaf, or because they are mute and deaf, because I've had that one happen before, or because they don't speak the language I speak or whatever. This, is, this has been a recurring thing for me in real life, and thus I've brought it up many times. In fact, I think I brought this up all the way back in the Voyager videos like five years ago at this point. Actually, I think it's longer ago than that. Anyway, you get the idea. This has been a very recurrent thing, uh, both in real life and in the way I analyze fiction. Because usually, fiction doesn't know how to do this properly. They assume that the moment you can't speak to someone, all communication breaks down, which is nonsense. There's many, many, many ways to communicate without using a single word. But what if that person doesn't have a concept of language? If there's not communication to them in the strictest sense, how do you reach out to them? This would then explain why she is so non-responsive to them the overwhelming majority of the time, right? In fact, the only person who ever speaks to her and expects some kind of response is McCoy, twice. Once when they're making their first escape, and he says, where's Kirk? Sure. And the second time is when he says, no, don't, don't be afraid to help him. And she stops. Those are the only two times, and I'll discuss that second incident later. So how do you reach out to someone who doesn't know what reaching out to means? And now we have an interesting situation. I admit, I'm not sure how I would do that. I know how I would do it as a writer, and it's actually very similar to what we see in this episode. She does what she does based on what she sees, and otherwise is effectively non-responsive. So while communication could happen in the most bare-bones way, it would only be more of a, you know, if I was to be like, then she would understand that I am hurting or in pain, and might react to that. If I shove her away from me, she would understand that I don't want to be close to her. If I grab her and, like, let's go, she might understand the desire to go with me. But that's about it. Like, it's, it's extremely bare-bones level communication. It's almost like communicating with a child who can't actually speak yet, right? You have to reach out to a mind that doesn't do any of that yet. And I found myself thinking of it like that because I've interacted with multiple babies in my life. And communicating with a baby is a whole different thing because they just don't understand the way even a child will understand, right? They have the ability to see stimuli and react to it, but they don't really have an understanding of what they're interacting with. They know, they're, they're still figuring out how to just you know move their hands or to understand what they're seeing, right? And so, you know, um, like, like one of the things I used to do with my niece to help her to, to learn how to eat properly would be, it, it, specifically chewing, it was actually, you know, doing it myself, and I would make her watch and go, I, I'd make her, I'd sit in front of her, I'd just do this, home, 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 and I would repeat the action several times so she could see it, and then try to imitate, imitate it, because imitation is something that babies do a lot, you know, they see and they do, so they're so, home, and she ended up biting her finger, <laughs> it, was, it was cute, she didn't bite it that hard, because she you know, didn't really have that going on yet, but Little things like that. And, and I found myself just, just thinking about this concept and how fascinating it would be to try and interact with a species that doesn't have communication in the strictest sense of the word. 
then I started thinking about how nonsensical that really is when, when you break it down. Because for a species to not have communication, they have to either have something else that supplants it or someone else is caretaking them, to, to, to use the Voyager example. But then, then that got me thinking again, and I hate to keep going off on this topic, but hear me out for a second. I remember Babylon 5. Now, in Babylon 5, there's this bit in the lore, uh, this is a very, very minor spoiler for Babylon 5, that species that naturally develop psychic powers do not develop sentience and sapience, because they don't have to. Because intelligence, to put it simply, is not an evolutionary trait that is necessary once you can psychically control food to just be... You become an apex predator at that point, basically. And so you stay a beast, you stay an animal, and your species never develops past that point because you don't need to. Because evolution doesn't automatically keep growing up. That's not how evolution works, right? Evolution works by um, the species, you know, the mutations breeding more because by co by coincidence they were more successful right but if you've reached the point where you have a total success rate at at feeding off of the animals and creatures around you or whatever it is you eat you don't need to keep evolving you're good you're done you you've hit it like i said apex predator now that's actually a major plot point in that story which is why i mentioned the spoiler thing but it got me thinking here now obviously they are not fully psychic in the sense that i'm mentioning but what if that is kind of a similar situation with these people? That they have developed this ability to directly interact with their environment to the point where they don't need to develop. They've stopped developing, right? Just just food for thought. I mean, admittedly, they probably wouldn't even be bipedal at that point, but just just something to mention. You'll also notice, by the way, to continue further down this, this rabbit hole, towards the end, the... Uh, what is it, Lan and Call? I, I didn't write down their names. The two dudes. They mentioned that the ideas of compassion and self-sacrifice have entered her being. Now, that could just be them using high-minded words because they've lost their emotional capacity, blah, blah, blah. Or it could be that those concepts did not exist for her until she observed them and empathically absorbed them, right? Which kind of adds further credence to my theory. Although I gotta be honest, a species like like this probably doesn't deserve to live in the way that they're saying. I mean, don't mistake me. I try to save the species too, and don't. And I'm gonna get all pissed about that later too. But the general idea I look at it is just that she didn't have such concepts until they were artificially externally introduced to her because she had no need of them because empath. So that's the theory. I look forward to hearing how incredibly wrong and stupid I am on this one. Now, all joking aside, I would like to hear your comments on this one. So, Kirk and crew get caught in a star force field, and Kirk's like, I can't stand up, he says, as he's currently standing up. There's like five or six little things where the script doesn't agree with what's going on on screen. I don't want to nitpick that. It's just, I kept noticing it. This is actually kind of a problem with season three in general. And given the severe budget limitations, the lack of script editing that was going the, the near total lack of script editing, by the way, that was going on. Most of the scripts that were going into print, that is to say the, the, the shooting scripts, were not getting the multiple drafts and the multiple rewrites they needed to, to get to that point. I mean, they would get several drafts. I'm not, I'm not trying to say they weren't first drafts. I'm just saying the usual process of polishing scripts wasn't happening. And we already mentioned Mr. Singer and how he did not know what he was doing. No offense to the man. He tried, but whew. And then we add to the fact that they were being limited in how many 
how many shots they could make of a specific shot because the re severe restrictions on how much shooting time they had and how much budget they had and the fact that Paramount was cracking down hard on the show by trying to kill it. Yeah. So there's a lot of things where it's just, you can effectively see that they made a mistake and they didn't have the time or the budget or the support to correct that mistake. This is, this is not the first episode that has those problems and it will not be the last. Either way, <clears throat> so biological impasse, I already mentioned that. I do like the fact that they go to the neck pinch early. In fact, it impressed me so much that it took me a while to realize the point of that. I'll get to that in a second as well. And they flee to the station. Ah, oh, we got to get out of here. Thankfully, we ordered the Enterprise away so we couldn't actually, you know, get out of here. <clears throat> good call there, Kirk. Very good call. This then leads to self-sacrificing. So there's this actually nice little bit where Scott is like, oh, I'm sure they're fine. Cut immediately to Kirk being tortured. You notice Kirk's the only one who takes his shirt off when he's being tortured, by the way. Which just makes me think that Kirk was like, wait, 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 wait. In character, he was like, wait. You're going to torture me. Pulls off his shirt. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> like, I can just totally figure that. Anyways, <clears throat> so... All of them are super self-sacrificing. All of them are trying to self-sacrifice over the others. I'm reminded of immunity syndrome, where all three of them faced the exact same choice in the exact same manner. All three of them were deciding one of us should be the one to go. In this case, I like how McCoy, rather than allowing it to be a debate, McCoy just takes matters into his own hands. Puts Kirk out. Puts Spock out. Nope. It's going to be B. Sorry. <laughs> it's, uh... It's very McCoy. And honestly, Spock could have probably pulled the same thing with the nerve pinch. He just didn't think to do it at first. So, quick thing. At one point, uh, Jem is trying to heal Kirk, and then runs away in terror. And McCoy says, no, wait! Don't be afraid to help him! And she stops. And then she turns and she helps him. I said I'd talk about that. It's the only scene in the entire episode, that has anything that might indicate that she can understand communication. If I'm being 100% honest, I think this is a nit. I think this is one of the instances where this, there was a script error, and they just didn't fix it. So that's my opinion. Let me just go ahead and give that right now. If I had to go with an in-character answer, though, because for some reason we have to follow Alpha Cannon, like some reloaded weirdos, I would say that... <laughs> Uh, you should go look up Low Reloaded, uh, YouTube.com. I would say that she heard the voice, no idea what it meant, but she can hear, right? And just the mere fact that she heard a, ha, ah, no, no context, no understanding, just, ha, ah, is what caused her to stop, physically stop. And then that's what made her... Now that she's physically stopped, now that she's she's processing that idea, that then got her to think on her own volition of the idea of maybe I should finish the job and help heal him. That's my take on that. Because, like I said, the episode is pretty clear that she does not have an understanding of language and therefore cannot communicate or perceive what they are saying to her at all. This is doubly true since they flat out explain the experiment towards the end of the episode right in front of her without any hesitation, as if she can't understand them. Anywho, so McCoy offers himself, 
And for the second time, they're given the option to escape easily, which, again, lines up pretty clearly. And this, this is when I'm going to mention something. At first, this feels like a threat episode. You know, there's something that we must uh, defeat in order to escape, right? But if you're paying attention, the escape process has been effortless both times. And in both cases, it's been so easy, it's been a little bit weird. And this time, they could probably just get away and be done with it. There's also the unusual attitude of the the aliens, which I forgot to write down their species, Vians, Vians, something like that. Because they're not really the usual approach here. They're not even the detached scientist approach. In fact, they apologize to McCoy as they're torturing him. You know, we're sorry, but we do need to do this. We apologize. Um, <clears throat> so this then leads me to my core point. This is not a threat episode. Well, what is it then? Is it a thinker? Eh, no. Is it a dilemma? No, there's no real dilemma here. The only thing we're left with then is mystery. And I think it's actually a pretty well-constructed one, because it's a mystery plot that is disguised as a threat plot. And as the episode goes further on, you start to realize the threat isn't really there. In, in, I mean, there's some actual stakes, don't mistake me, and McCoy does almost die. And Kirk does save the day in the end. I don't want to dismiss any of these points. But my point is, this is a mystery. What's going on and why is the core point of the episode? Hence why the f the finale, the climax, consists of two elements. One, them explaining what's actually going on. And two, Kirk convincing them that, okay, your experiment's done, you, sh you should help. It's good. It's good. It's, it's, it's a well-constructed uh, purpose of the episode. But now i got to be pissed off at the episode, because... At one point, Spock says, I think it's Spock, millions of the inhabitants in this system are doomed. This is the moment at which all possibility of them not being aware of the inhabitants of this system is gone. They knew the people are here, and they were showing up to evacuate a research station and then leave. Do I need to explain why that pisses me off? And don't you prime directive me. As I've said many times, in fact, as Kirk will say in a future episode, <laughs> interference and contamination of their culture is preferable to total annihilation. Like, I, I, I get not violating the PD, I do, but this is a little bit different. This is, their sun's going Nova. And you can't tell me the Federation does not have the personnel carriers necessary to evacuate a planet. Of course they do. I mean, remember not that many episodes ago, they were willing to show up and try to get rid of this asteroid just because it was about to hit a planet. Right? That had inhabitants on it? If if the same argument applies, they should just be like, well, let's go study that asteroid as it hits the planet. Oh, watch those people screaming in terror as it comes. What the hell are they doing here? There's also a... No, okay, this is what I took from this. But this is even worse than I thought. Because they mention they only have the power to save one planet. So we want to make sure she was absolutely correct. By the way, I love this idea. Imagine picking out one human of the, what, nine billion we're up to at this point? One human. And testing that one human to determine if our race was, was, was worthy of existence. Think about how badly that can go in so many different directions. Anyways. <clears throat> There are, they, they imply that there's multiple planets, but they only have the power to save one. Are they including themselves in that? Or are they 
are there multiple species in this system across multiple planets, which actually makes this even worse because then they save Gem's people and leave the other people to die. And Kirk and crew are like, well, let's get out of here. Let's have a lighthearted joke. <laughs> Emotions save the day. <laughs> in the background. Our heroes, ladies and gentlemen. There's a quote I had to share here, too. I wrote it down word for word. Everything that is truest and best in all species of beings has been revealed by you. Look, I'm totally down for people are awesome. I, I, I am. I, I do think that people are awesome, but you don't need to blow that much smoke up my ass episode. It's okay. <laughs> I got this. Uh, but yeah, at this point of the episode, there's ten minutes left of the episode, and it's like, oh, okay. So we know what's going on. The mystery has been revealed. This is when Kirk has to give the Kirk speech. It is worth noting that Jeb was fully willing and able to save McCoy. It's the fact that McCoy threw her off him that is why the sacrifice didn't go through. Frankly, I'm not even sure why the Kirk speech needed to happen. Oh, right, it's because they needed to have Kirk be the hero at the last minute. No, really, that's why that's there. You'll notice there's no fight this episode either. I'm guessing they were willing to start letting things slide because they were really desperate for script to happen at this point. Ugh. Do you see why I'm gonna put I, I why I have put this on the skip list? It's not terrible. It's just I have no desire to watch it again, and the really, really horrific implications of the millions of people that are dying to that supernova as our heroes saunter away laughing and joking really bothers me. What about you guys? I am as ever curious of your thoughts. I'll see you next.